I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. This morning we will look at verses 4 through 7. If you use one of the Blue Pew Bibles, this is on page 1007. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 7. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us call upon him in prayer. Father, with Jesus, we ask that you would sanctify us in your truth, knowing that your word is truth. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts that understand, believe, love, and obey your word. And through the means of grace that is ours, we ask that you would strengthen us to endure and live by faith for another day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 7. We read, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word of God. Who are your heroes? Do you have any heroes in your life? Who are the men and women that when you look at the way and outcome of their lives, you say, I want to be and I want to live like that. If you had asked me as a kid who my hero was, I would have given you a very foolish answer because I would have said without hesitation, my hero is Michael Jordan. Because all I cared about at that time was the ability to play basketball well. That's what I strove for. This just goes to show that often we have very faulty criteria for choosing our heroes. We prize and prioritize the wrong characteristics and outcomes. Now, if you want to know what the world values, then just go and visit the various halls of fame. Those are where the world's heroes are. And in the United States, you learn, well, we really value athletics. And so most of our halls of fame are for athletes. 
But maybe you wonder if Christians even should have heroes other than Jesus. And of course, Jesus should be your primary hero. Indeed, the goal of your humanity is conformity to Jesus. You are to follow him. You are to become like him, to share in his sufferings, to imitate his faith and obedience to the Father, and so to participate in his glory. Yes, Jesus should be your primary hero. However, I don't believe this precludes having secondary heroes. And in fact, I would argue that the Bible encourages you to have such heroes. And Hebrews chapter 11 is exhibit A. For God has graciously given to you, as the author of Hebrews says, a great cloud of witnesses. He has given you heroes of the faith to encourage and exhort you by their example. Men and women for you to imitate and to learn from. Later in chapter 13, the author will encourage the Hebrews to remember their leaders, those who spoke to them the word of God, who taught them the gospel. And he commands the Hebrews to consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So you are commanded to consider the lives and imitate the faith of those who have gone before you. And the great conclusion of this list of heroes you find in chapter 11 is, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, after the author gives you all of these illustrations and examples of men and women who have lived by faith, his conclusion is, therefore, live like them. Be like them. But the author doesn't stop there. For he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. And right there is the key difference between holding someone up as a worldly idol and holding them up as a godly hero. You make someone an idol when you look to them alone, when your gaze settles and stops at the sight of them. Heroes, on the other hand, are those who, when you look at them and their lives, their life actually leads your gaze to settle upon Jesus. They are the example of faith that directs your gaze to the founder and perfecter of your faith. So you imitate their faith, and the object of their faith is Jesus. Christian faith is ultimately then to see Christ. And so to see Christian faith is to see Christ. So Christian, you ought to have heroes. But make them heroes of faith 
whose way and outcome of life leads you to see Jesus. Let me also just give a, a word of advice and suggest to you that your heroes should be dead. I believe a general rule is have living mentors, have dead heroes. Living mentors are those who can say to you, like Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ, and as long as they are imitating Christ, you can imitate them. But to truly consider the outcome of someone's way of life, they need to come to the end of their life. And the faith you should ultimately imitate is finishing faith. That's the point of Hebrews. You need to have faith that finishes, so your heroes should be those you know finished. You need heroes who exhibit finishing faith, which means you need heroes who have lived and died by faith. And so I believe one of the preliminary applications simply from the fact that Hebrews 11 is in your Bible, is that you ought to look for and have heroes of the faith. This certainly includes heroes from the Bible, because God has commended these lives to you by preserving their record in his word. But even though the canon of God's word has closed, the history of his people has not ended. And so there are many more heroes of the faith whose lives will direct you to Jesus. I'm often asked, what, what do I do when my faith is weak, when I feel lethargic, discouraged, maybe apathetic in my daily walk with the Lord. And newsflash, I feel that way at times. And so I'm asked, what do you do? And beyond just remaining committed to the means of grace God has given me, one of my regular practices since I was a kid, because my dad instilled this in me, is to read church history, especially Christian biography. That is not just something for pastors or professional theologians to do. You should read church history. You should read Christian biography. For reading about God's preser preserving faithfulness to his people, which is really what you're reading about when you read church history. It's just a, a long, long story of the fact that God preserves his people over and over and over again. Reading about God's faithfulness, seeing that others have struggled in the exact same ways I've struggled. They felt the things I've felt. They faced the trials that I've faced. And then seeing how God lavished his grace upon them. He did not abandon them. It strengthens and re-energizes me to keep going. So let me commend this practice to you. And let me suggest that you read church history and Christian biography with your kids from time to time. There's a lot of great resources out there. More and more are coming out. Very short Christian biographies for you to start reading to your kids. And you want to know on this Mother's Day, one of the lessons you learn from church history? Here, I was struck by this yet again as I was reading a history of 
Princeton Theological Seminary. Yes, that's what I do for fun. I was reading this history, and yet again, I was struck that almost every single one of my dead heroes had really faithful mothers. I mean, it just comes across the board over and over and over. They had mothers who were patient with them, who endured with them, who taught them, who prayed with and for them. God moves history, and one of the main vehicles God has used to move redemptive history forward is faithful mothers. That is not hyperbole. That is all just preliminary application for the fact that Hebrews 11 is in the Bible. But let's get back to the actual content of Hebrews 11. And yes, I factored that introduction into the length of my sermon, so don't panic. As I explained last time, at the end of the author's warning in chapter 10, the author encourages the Hebrews by their own past example of faithful endurance. And he reminds them that they are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. But right before this concluding exhortation, he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which says in part, My righteous one shall live by faith. So the author reminds the Hebrews that God's people must live by faith, and they must live by faith to the very end and not shrink back. However, the author knows this may not be clear. They may not be sure what it means or looks like to live by faith. So in chapter 11, he gives them a brief explanation of what it means to live by faith, and then he follows up with several examples and illustrations. Last time, we considered that brief explanation in verses 1 through 3. We learned that living by faith and again, that's the emphasis. It's not so much just the, the doctrine or essence of saving faith. It's about the practice of saving faith. And we learn that living by faith means, in, in one sense, you are already holding and seeing and as of yet unrealized and hoped for reality. We saw that living by faith is what pleases God, and that living by faith is infallible because the ground faith walks upon is the infallible ground of God's performative word, meaning God's word creates the reality that it speaks. Now in verses 4 through 7, the author gives us his first few examples of living faith which at the same time continues to teach us what living faith is and what it looks like in practice. And so in these first three examples of Abel, Enoch, and Noah, we begin to see more concretely that living faith is moving faith. Living faith moves it's not idle. It is not static. In other words, the faith that holds and sees what has not yet fully come to pass doesn't just wait around for it to come to pass. It moves forward into that unrealized reality, doesn't hold back in uncertain fear. 
That's what I mean when I say living faith or living by faith moves. So with these three examples, we learn three lessons about the movement of living faith. Number one, we learn that living faith is a movement of the whole heart. Number two, that it is a movement of the whole life. And number three, that it is moved by the whole counsel of God. So number one, living faith is a movement of the whole heart. In other words, before someone begins to live and act and move by faith, something has to happen inside of him or her. For if a heart is not moved by faith, the feet will not move by faith. And likewise, the direction of the heart will determine the direction of the life. And this is evident from the life of Abel. You see verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4 is one of the more well-known stories in the Bible. Cain and Abel were brothers. They were the first two sons of Adam and Eve. And we are told they both brought before the Lord an offering. Cain was a farmer, so he brought produce. Abel was a shepherd, so he brought a lamb. But we're told that God accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's. And when you read through Genesis 4, one of the obvious questions that comes to mind is, why? Why was Abel's offering more acceptable to God than Cain's? And Genesis 4 doesn't explicitly tell you. One of the more popular answers is to argue that this was a sin offering, so Abel's offering was more acceptable because it included the required blood, which was already seen as necessary from the fact that God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins after they sinned. Cain, on the other hand, didn't follow this established precedent, and so his offering was rejected. I suppose that is a possible explanation. The problem is, neither Genesis nor Hebrews seems to point to the content of the offering as the problem. For Moses doesn't mention that this was a sin offering. Seems more likely this was just a general offering of worship and devotion to the Lord. And neither does Moses record any direct word from God at this point, providing specific instructions for the content of the offering. Moses even seems to point away from the content of the offering as the key difference by explaining that each brother simply brought something in light of his calling. That's why he tells us that Cain worked the ground and Abel watched over sheep. And furthermore, Moses implies that the offering was merely a reflection of the man, and it was the man that God ultimately accepted or rejected. For Moses writes, the Lord had regard for Abel 
and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Genesis, therefore, at least implies that the primary difference between these two brothers had something to do with their heart as opposed to their offering. And Hebrews confirms this by explaining that the difference between the two was faith. Abel offered by faith, and Cain apparently did not. And so Abel's faith continues to speak to us long after his brother silenced and buried his tongue in the ground. It's important to note here that these first two examples of Abel and Enoch are, are a pair. They're meant to go together. They're connected by the fact that they are both specifically said to have pleased God. They were commended by God. They're also connected by the fact that neither one of them, unlike most of the other examples that we'll hear about, neither of them had a direct word from the Lord. And finally, they're also connected by the concept of death, which is highlighted with both. When you see this, you understand that verse 6 is, is referring not just to Enoch, but it's referring to Enoch and Abel. And it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So that's explaining both what we're seeing with Abel and Enoch. So the difference between Cain and Abel was not first an external difference. It was an internal difference. Abel pleased God because he had a heart of faith, which as verse 6 explains means he had a heart that was seeking God. His desire was to draw near to God. In other words, God was pleased to receive Abel because Abel's pleasure was the presence of God. His offering, therefore, his external movement of faith reflected an internal movement of faith. You'll notice in Genesis 4, if you go back and read this account, that Moses notes the quality of Abel's offering, and he is silent about Cain's. Abel didn't just bring any lamb. He brought the firstborn of his flock with the fat portions. In other words, he brought the best he had. The fact that nothing is said about the quality of Cain's offering almost implies, and Cain just grabbed whatever he saw on his way to the offering. Cain went through the motions, but his offering reflected his heart which was not a heart delighting in God, seeking God and longing to draw near to God. He just, he know he had to bring an offering. He just wanted to get it over with. Sometimes I wonder if that's how we come to church. Cain, Cain wanted to bring his offering and then go get back to the things he really enjoyed. Is that sometimes how we live? And we, we say, all right, yeah, I know Sunday morning, I, I got to go to church. I'll, I'll check that box. And then the rest of the day, I can, I can just finally do what I want. Just, just take some good me time. Abel's offering, however, demonstrated that God was first in his heart. To bring the best he had was just saying, God, you're the best that I have. I delight in you, not in these good gifts that you've given me. 
And so, Christian, the le lesson of Abel's faith is clear. The condition and quality of your heart matters most. No matter what good works you do, what duties you perform, they mean nothing apart from faith. Your lips may profess God, your hands and feet may serve God, but if your heart remains far from God, you don't please God. For God desires faith. And Paul confirms, for whatever, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Christian, what is the condition of your heart? Does your heart beat with faith? Do you not only believe, yes, God exists, but do you want to draw near to this God? Are you seeking the world's pleasures or are you seeking God as your pleasure? Now, if I ask that question and you, you reflect and you see, I, I don't really think I have a spiritual heartbeat, then start asking God right now for a new heart. And if you sense the pulses weep, pray for God to quicken you. I love how in Psalm 119, the psalmist prays, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. It's as if the psalmist recognizes my heart for God is not big enough. I don't feel for him what I ought to feel. I don't want to obey him as I ought to want to obey him. So I'm praying, God, enlarge my heart, enlarge my faith, enlarge my affections, for I recognize they are too small. And then the psalmist prays, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Not part of my heart, my whole heart. We have to pray that because sinfully we have naturally divided hearts. It's why elsewhere in Psalm 86, the psalm prays, unite my heart to fear your name because it's, it's divided. Too often we're willing to give God part of our heart, but not the whole thing. And yet God calls us to love him with our whole heart. God will not remain as a prisoner in one lonely cell of your heart where you lock him and say, you stay there. I'll see you Sunday, maybe for my five minute morning devotional. You just stay there. I'll come and then I'll go do my other thing. God will have all of your heart or you will have none of him. So if you are to live and move by faith, the first movement you must pray for is a movement of the heart that seeks God and desires to draw near to him. For living faith is a movement of the whole heart. But number two, living faith is a movement of the whole life. Verse five, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now it might surprise you to learn that in Judaism, there is seemingly endless amounts of, of literature and speculation about Enoch. They loved to write and think about Enoch. And it's kind of surprising because in the Old Testament, he has a grand total of four verses, which are found in Genesis chapter 5. 
In Genesis 5, Moses is recording the genealogy from Adam to Noah. And the ominous refrain you hear throughout chapter 5 is, and he died. And so you cannot help but feel the weight and spread of sin's curse as more and more men are born and yet then they always die. Yet within this dark genealogy of death, there is this bright beacon of light and life. And that beacon is Enoch. For Moses says, not once but twice, Enoch walked with God. And then instead of hearing, and he died, you read, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch's entire manner of life is described as walking with God. It's a description of loving intimacy, of friendship, of peace, of joy. It's like when you, you see two people in, in love and they're just walking, holding hands, smiling at each other, conversing easily with one another. There's a strong connotation of a joyful and loving relationship, which even led the Jews as they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek to translate the phrase Enoch walked with God as Enoch pleased God. This is the translation the author of Hebrews follows. For to walk with God in obedience, in peace, in harmony, necessarily means you delight in God and God delights in you. So Enoch's life of faithful obedience to God was like walking with the sun rays of God's pleasure, lighting his path and warming his face. Enoch's life was marked by the pleasure of God. And so as we look to Enoch, we are reminded of our chief end, which is to glorify and enjoy God forever. Enoch glorified and enjoyed God forever, for Enoch did not suffer death. He was just immediately translated into heaven. It's as if that, that walk with God eventually just stepped out of this world into the next. However, I want you to notice two things. First, notice that Enoch's entire life is summarized as walking with or pleasing God. So just as the movement of faith in the heart is all or nothing, the movement of faith in your life is all or nothing. God has your whole life or he has none of it. So as I've said before, Christian is not just one descriptor among many, as if you are a Christian as well as a husband or wife, a father or mother, a student or a teacher, a physician, a neighbor, a friend. No Christian defines and dictates all of those other roles. Your whole life must be a movement of faith. For Christianity is not compartmental. It is comprehensive. And the second thing I want you to notice is the comparison and contrast between Abel and Enoch. Remember I said these are a pair. They're, they're standing together. 
And the comparison is obvious. They're both commended as having pleased God. They're both faithful. They're both accepted by God. But this makes the contrast more striking. For you notice that one of them saw death. And it was a pretty brutal death. He's murdered by his own brother. It's not a happy ending. And the other doesn't see death. He's just carried by God's pleasure into heaven. Now, why is that contrast important? It's important because it guards you from gauging God's pleasure in you by your earthly circumstances. It guards you from comparing your life to someone else's. And when you look at that, if you think someone else's life is going better, you just automatic, automatically conclude, God's happy with them. He's not very happy with me. Enoch was not more loved by and accepted by God. He was not received as more righteous than Abel. The difference in their circumstances was nothing other than God's wise providence. God's ultimate plan for both of them was the same, to be received as righteous into eternity. But the path he ordained for them was different. And the same is truth for us. Furthermore, God desired to teach his people through both of their lives. I've also said this before, but God's work in your life is not just about you. Yes, when God works in your life, he has something to teach you, but he also is intending, intending to teach those around you something. What happens to you is never exclusively about you and God. It's about that, but it's also about more. Abel's faith is not the only faith that still speaks. So it seems to me that Abel's faith reminds us that God's pleasure means the world's anger. Because Abel was loved by God, he was hated by Cain. Because God received him, Cain rejected him. And so the Hebrews needed to know that living by faith in this world is living opposed by the world. They needed to know you're going to suffer earthly loss and death. On the other hand, Enoch's faith was intended to remind us that the pleasure of God is the only pleasure that matters. That no matter what you suffer, your life can still be defined as a walk in the light of God's pleasure. It teaches us that the end of faith is always heavenly gain, no matter the earthly loss, and that the pleasure of God is worth all of the world's hostility. That the gain of God is worth the loss of the entire world. And so, Christian, God will likewise use your life and faith as a lesson for others. But it's not up to you which lesson he wants to teach through you. You're the lesson. God's the one who writes the curriculum. But if you are to walk with God, it means that you need to regularly meet with God. Because I don't know how you can walk with someone that you never meet with. I love to go on walks. So sometimes when people are asking to meet with me, 
I suggest let's go for a walk while we talk. But the key to this is we have to actually meet at the same time and place. One time had someone that I was meeting with said, hey, we're going we're gonna to go to this park. Uh, we'll walk this trail and we'll talk. Now, the thing we didn't know is that there are two entrances to this park with the exact same sign in front of it. So I'm waiting at one entrance. The person I'm supposed to meet with is waiting at the other entrance. Eventually, after we're both waiting for a long time, get on the phone. Hey, where are you? I'm right by the sign. I'm right by the sign. I don't see you. And probably took us a little longer than it should have to figure out there's two signs. You can't walk with someone if you don't meet in the same place. So if you want to walk with God, you need to meet him where he says he'll meet you. And he says he will meet you in his word as you call upon him in prayer and as you gather for corporate worship. Those are the places you need to be day after day, week after week, if you want to walk with God. When you neglect God's means of grace, he will inevitably feel far from you. Living faith is a movement of the whole life. Third and finally, this one is much shorter. Living faith is moved by the whole counsel of God. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I spoke a bit about Noah last time, so I won't spend much time here. But the main aspect of faith I want to emphasize again is that Noah's faith responded in obedience to a direct word from God. When God said, build an ark, he built an ark. When God said, a flood is coming, he acted in accordance with that word, even though the flood didn't come for about a hundred years. To live by faith is to obey God's word. All of it. The Christian moves according to the whole counsel of God. He doesn't accept the new heavens and earth part and reject the sin, Satan, and hell parts. He doesn't accept all the grace and reject all the obedience. He doesn't accept the commands that conform to his will and reject the commands that offend his will. He obeys it all. What the Bible says, you do. Because what the Bible says, God says. But, you may argue, I don't have a direct word from God for every decision that I am required to make in life. Yes, God has revealed his will and his word. I have his general commands, but he hasn't told me who I'm supposed to marry, what college I'm supposed to go to, what job I'm supposed to take, which house I'm supposed to buy, which church I'm supposed to attend, or whether I'm supposed to avoid gluten and only eat organic foods. Hasn't told me all of that. That's true. You will face many decisions and questions in life. And the Bible won't directly answer all of them. So what do you do? 
Well, first, you do remember Noah, and you learn that whatever God's word does clearly command for you, you do. Sometimes we, we think the Bible's way more vague than it is. God has told you what you need to know, and it's, it's pretty clear. And so you need to know your Bible. A lot of times the problem isn't, well, I just don't know what God's telling me to do. It's just, you haven't read your Bible. You don't actually know what it says. The Westminster Confession of Faith states, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. So everything you need to know, Bible either just clearly says it, or you can use biblical logic and figure it out pretty quickly. But also remember Abel and Enoch. Noah had a direct command from God, build an ark. Okay, I, I can do that. Abel did not have a direct word regarding what kind of offering he was supposed to bring. We're not told anything of Enoch having this direct word from the Lord that told him exactly what he did in every single situation in his life. But what Abel and Enoch had is, is actually what you and I have. We just have it in a fuller degree than they had it. For Abel and Enoch, I am sure, knew the story of redemption up to that point. Their parents had told them about God who was their creator and who had made them in his image. Their parents had told them about sin and disobedience and, and about God's promise that he would send an offspring who would crush the serpent. So they knew God is my creator. I'm made in his image. I know about sin. I know about salvation. I know I'm to glorify and enjoy God. And so then, from that point on, they did as Augustine tells us to do. Love God and do whatever you please. I'm like, wait, really? Yeah. You know God's word. You're studying his word. You're being conformed by God's word. So love him. Acknowledge him, as Proverbs says, in all your ways. And make decisions. Move. Still one of my favorite books by my former pastor is entitled Just Do Something. Don't be paralyzed by fear all the time. Trust that the Lord is leading you by his spirit. Love him. Make decisions. Christian, you have the whole counsel of God. You know his will, which is your salvation and sanctification. So love him, acknowledge him, and move forward. Seek first his kingdom. When you don't have wisdom, James says, ask for it and he will give it to you. Give thanks in all circumstances. Call upon the Lord in prayer before all things. And I mean before all things. Christianity, Christian prayer is not limited to praying before food. You can pray as you receive all things. Gather with his people for worship. Surround yourself with wise counselors and live. Living faith is moved by the whole counsel of God. And in closing, remember that faith, which is necessary for righteousness, 
is not your righteousness, but it is a means by which you receive your righteousness. I close here because sometimes I think when we emphasize living by faith and we talk about justification by faith and there's a lot of talk about faith, which is good, we, we can become muddled in our thinking and we start to think, ah, faith is that good work that, that earns my favor with God. Faith is why God loves me. So in one sense, we turn faith into a work and then we think faith is our righteousness. But living by faith isn't losing the gospel. It's living by the gospel. Abel's, Enoch's, and Noah's faith was not their righteousness before God. It did not merit God's acceptance and pleasure. Just by faith, they were commended as righteous. They became heirs of the righteousness that comes by faith. So faith is not righteousness. Faith receives righteousness because faith receives Christ, who is your righteousness. So don't read Hebrews 11 in isolation. Remember the first 10 chapters that we've worked through, which emphasizes the glory and salvation of Jesus Christ. He is your righteousness. He is your redemption. He is your justification. He is your sanctification. He is your adoption. He is your glorification. We look to heroes of the faith because their faith helps us look to Jesus in everything. And he is the founder, perfecter, and only proper object of faith. So living by faith does not save you. You live by faith because God has saved you. It is the consequence of salvation, not its cause. So when you are dead and buried, Will your faith in Jesus still speak to those who are left behind? I pray that at my funeral, if there's any memorials, people are telling stories about my life. I pray that every story will start with those two simple words we find in Hebrews 11. By faith. This world defines heroes by worldly fame and accomplishment. God defines heroes by faith in him. So let the world have all of its halls of fame. May we be content to be remembered only in God's hall of faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you asking for hearts that love you, for lives that walk with you, and for the ability to trust your word and go wherever it tells us to go. Lord, we aren't like that naturally. So we pray that you would continue to supernaturally conform us to the Lord Jesus Christ that the mind of Christ would be our mind, that the will of Christ would be our will, that the love of Christ would be our love. Father, help us by your word, by your spirit, to go into another day, another week, loving you and doing as we please because you are our pleasure.
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.